Hello everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the Chaubay Sahab podcast. And today we have Daniel Vasalo with us. Daniel is a prolific creator, a creator of products, a creator of digital assets, digital courses, and most importantly, a creator of wealth. And something that Daniel never creates is stress. That's something he doesn't like. In this episode, it will be my pursuit to learn from him how to get successful without getting the stress that is often attached along with it. Daniel, we are so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Prashant. Good to, good to be here. Absolute pleasure. So to jump straight in, you have, as, as of today, you have made more than $800,000 uh, selling your own courses or different digital services and even physical products. So how has this journey been from $0 to now $800 plus in total revenue. Tell, tell us the story of from where you started, from $0, the journey to $800,000. Yeah, uh, so it wasn't a conventional journey and it wasn't even intentional, I would say. Right? So I, I stumbled into this part by accident. And uh, a little bit of a background, so my, my background is, is, is an engineer. Right? I worked as a software engineer for pretty much all my life. Uh, most recently, I spent eight and a half years working at Amazon until the beginning of 2019. And uh, long story short, so I do not get into that. Sort of, I somewhat started to realize that uh, you know working on somebody else's terms wasn't the ideal career path for me. And I took the plunge to try to fend for myself and try to do something on my own. I was a bit lucky; I had some savings, so I had some time to experiment. But the original plan was to do the traditional boot software bootstrapping journey, right? That involved brainstorming and coming up with some good idea, uh, something that I could do relatively on my own or sort of as a small uh, business, right? And try to make it profitable and keep improving it and live off it. Long story short, I think what I underestimated was sort of the role of chance and randomness and good timing, good luck, being in the right place and the right time with almost with, with many of these kinds of businesses, right? And even though I was putting a lot of hard work into this business in the beginning, right, that I was thinking of doing and I, I started building, uh, sort of something subconsciously was telling me and was nagging me that, wait a minute, I mean, how, why are you so sure that this is going to succeed? Will it succeed? And what if it fails? And how will you know where, when... Uh, maybe I should give up on it, right? I mean, should I keep persevering for years, right? And what, you know, all these questions that I couldn't really uh, sort of answer. And sort of, I think this led me to the realization that I need to have a different strategy if I wanted to make my self-employment arrangement sustainable rather than go all in on one thing and just put hard work and treat it like a full-time job as I had before, right? Um, where in that case, this strategy worked. Right? Because when I had a job, I just worked hard, did the best that I could, and I kept getting rewarded and promoted. And, you know, good things come to, come to you when you do work this way. But in the real business world it's not the same right you could work as hard as you can and you know destiny is not guaranteed to reward you at the end of the day so sort of i think i had a small crisis of anxiety right a few months in and i think this was helpful in a way because it led me to uh, what i like to call now take a more portfolio approach rather than focus on one thing just try many small things at once right and uh, sort of diversify, see what works, throw away the rest. And this led me to parts that, uh, first of all, I didn't know I was good at. I didn't know, uh, I learned about myself, about things that I enjoyed doing. And um, sort of right now, right about almost three years in, uh, the things that I'm doing now, I would have never even imagined that I would be doing, right? I mean, not, not, not just three years ago, even just a year ago, for example, for some things. Right? So I, I think this is a part uh, sort of where I've intentionally embraced randomness, trying new things, I think small things in particular, what I like to call placing small bets, things that are not very expensive from an upfront cost, from a time investment, and even financially, uh, and sort of seeing what's working, seeing what I'm enjoying, seeing what works well with my lifestyle, because, you know, I'm... I'm a, sort of, I have two small kids, sort of my time is quite limited, right? So I can't, I don't have the luxury of, you know, working 18 hour days and things like that, even if I needed to, <laughs> or I wanted to. Um, so 
that's what led me right, to all these things. And I'm happy to elaborate more and more details, right? but sort of it was, was a very random, <laughs> I would call it, part. There was a recent tweet in which you said uh, most people these days are always going for thinking big and having these big audacious goals, mm -hmm. but what they should really be doing is thinking small. So while these uh, big, uh, big thought leaders are telling everyone uh, to think big, think big and try to have humongous dreams, you are encouraging people to have small dreams and take small bits and think small. So yeah, explain this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a big believer that uh, small uh, successes can be equally satisfying as big successes and small successes, small things are, of course, usually more achievable, right? I mean, thinking big, uh, sort of, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. The problem with thinking big is that most big, ambitious things have very low odds of materializing, right? And have, you know, and if if we only live one lifetime, right? I mean, we only have finite time on Earth, and if we're doing things that have low odds of materializing in our lifetime, I mean, we're going to end up sort of living a life where we're continuously unsatisfied, pursuing something that we'll never achieve, and. I don't think it's a lifestyle arrangement that's desirable for most people. And, you know, I know many people personally, and I probably would live this as well myself for, for, for a little while. And usually these kinds of people are always stressed out, always worried, always anxious, always unsatisfied. And I don't think uh, that's a great life strategy. I think there's lots of uh, uh, hidden benefits with uh, going for what I like to call the low-hanging fruit, right? starting small, going after small things, you get lots of satisfaction, you get lots of information uh, when something small succeeds. Right? Um, I, I believe, and this is somewhat controversial, apparently, I believe there's much more to, to learn from something small that succeeds than from something big that failed completely. I'm not saying there's nothing to learn from a big failure, but small ones teach us a lot, teach us Again, uh, what we're good at, teach us what we like, teach us about what works, right? Sort of in the real world, what we can keep building on and things like that. Whereas uh, doing something grandiose and it, f it fails, you're usually back to square one, right? And, uh, and this comes with some psychological costs as well, right? It tends to be demotivating, you know, and uh, sort of discouraging. I don't know about you, right? But probably if I try spend a year or two building something and then it fails, maybe I do it again for two years and then it fails, I think I will be extremely discouraged to try something else. And that's a huge cost that very, very few people seem to factor in uh, in these uh, strategies, I think. Absolutely. And I think that's a narrative that's lacking in the present startup ecosystem that everyone is chasing these big goals mm -hmm. and there is big money flowing in. Uh, but there is a big, big market and big money to be made uh, even in these small bits and small projects, right? And you have demonstrated it by doing it yourself. You have been able to build a significant amount of wealth while just taking on these small, small projects, creating these online courses. Mm -hmm. So talk me into this small bits approach to achieving success. Yeah. How does one go about taking this approach to success? So uh, I think uh, sort of many things that right? I think the general idea is, as we described before, that is to try small things that with small uh, upfront costs uh, that allows you to sort of build a portfolio of activities because we're assuming that we're not good at predicting what will work and what won't, that we're not as smart <laughs> as we think we are, right? And sometimes we need to just test things in the real world. But I think, uh, okay, then it sort of brings the question, okay, but what should we do, right? And I think sort of probably the, the approach that I like to take is, first of all, I like to take stock of my assets, right? Sort of the things that I know how to do, my experiences, my expertise, my knowledge, my interests, my personal connections, my reputation, things that I already possess. And um, then I try to figure out what advantages do I have? Because I, I dislike thinking in labels. Right? I dislike talking, thinking about myself as a programmer or as a, X or Y. I think I'd rather atomize my assets, right? What, what does, what can I do? I, yes, I can write code, but I can also write, I can speak, I can, I have some knowledge in certain domains, I can do some web design. There's lots of small things that I can do, right? And I think once you start thinking about your assets this way, it starts to unlock you from the pigeonholed vision of you have to be a programmer, you have to be a writer, or a designer, or whatever. 
like the things that I'm doing right now, um, most of them, at least the majority of them, are, are not not related to my old profession as a programmer, right? Or at least not directly related, which I think has been helpful for me. In addition, right, something that has been very important to, to me, and this is a realization that has happened to me recently, is that um, I'm not a believer that ideas tend to come to us top down, right? Sort of, we, we tend to believe that we're sitting in the shower and then we have some big idea, light bulb moment, and then we go and execute it. It might happen in some cases, but I think most of the time we need to be inspired from the outside, right? I think our imagination is, uh, is overrated. Usually we need to see somebody else doing something interesting and then we ask ourselves, that's interesting, and look, this is working for you or for him or for her, and what if I try to do something similar, maybe on a different domain or with my own twist or something like that? And I, I believe uh, this is something also that's really discussed, like sort of the, I like to call it, we need to find our inspiration generator, something that allows us to randomly bump into chance encounters, mostly watching other people do things in the real world, and let that inspire us right, to uh, to our ideas. And uh, this is something that I've sort of built into my system. And I've been following sort of other creators, sort of to be completely honest for me, and I'm not recommending this for everyone, sort of different preferences, but for me, Twitter has become my inspiration generator. Like me, not me tweeting, like not building an audience or whatever, but just me consuming Twitter, like following other people, following other creators, especially people that are not doing conventional things. And um, sort of occasionally I bump into something that the, I can almost feel it. The, it rearranges the wires in my brain <laughs> and I start seeing things differently and things that un until I minute ago, uh, until I minute before, I wouldn't even have thought that maybe I could try something like these things. Right? So um, it's a mix of those things. Right? It's a mix of the system right? to embrace randomness, I like to call it, right? to uh, allow random things to come to us. And then sort of have the discipline to not feel obligated to take any opportunity that comes to us, but apply some selection criteria that is somewhat uh, sort of defined as, can I do, can I bring something to market quickly within you know, just a few weeks or at month at most like without spending too much time and money? Is this something I can do on my own, at least to start with? Uh, is this something that I can do? Of course, right? because that's important. And uh, then, you know, if the idea passes that selection criteria, I might choose to give that shot, right? And again, sort of, I, I also like to, uh, sort of, I, I like to say, I like to treat ideas uh, like cattle, not like pets, right? Sort of like, like uh, don't see that, don't treat your ideas like something you fall in love with, right? Something that, uh, you know, treat it like a farm animal, essentially, right? That you use, you take, you, you sort of, you uh, benefit from, but if they don't work out for you, you know, it's not part of your identity. It's not part of your um, your your self worth. Um, it's like how VCs treat ideas, right? Venture capitalists, right? They fund many things, uh, and they're not necessarily attached to one particular one. If one fails, sure, there may be some disappointment, but it's not the end of the world that you just move on to other things. Yeah, I get it. So basically, we should be thinking about our ideas that we work on, like the bets a VC takes that. Yeah, uh, VC knows that most of his uh, investments are not going to work out, but, but he also knows that he just needs one or two of these to work out to really even out his portfolio and make a profit, right? Yeah, exactly. I think the biggest difference from a VC, I, I like this strategy, like thinking like a VC. Of course, the main difference is that we as individuals, uh, we're not scaling our capital usually, right? We're scaling our time. That's what we're investing, right? And, you know, all mere mortals have 24 hours in a day. Usually we sleep eight hours maybe another eight hours, family time, other things. So we, we only have like a few four to eight hours of things to invest every day. So I think we need to be even more ruthless with our selection criteria. A VC might be able to say on a whim, okay, this looks interesting. The founder looks, uh, looks capable. Let's write a $100,000 check and we keep going. I think in our case, we need to be even more disciplined, even more strict right? to go for things that are usually smaller. I mean, that's what we're trading off. We're taking of the upside, but what we get trying to select for are things that are more likely to work. And it doesn't need to be things that are going to make us millions of dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever, or necessarily be scalable or be sustainable forever. This could be something that, you know, a small bet could be something that has the upside of making you $10,000 once 
right? And it might still be the time investment because if you spend a few weeks and you make $10,000, it's a, it's a win in my book. I think it's probably it's a win for many people as well. And so that's the, that's the mentality. I think sort of a mistake that I did in the past was like what I mentioned earlier, feeling the almost the obligation that if I have, if I have a good idea and I feel like I can do it, I feel almost obligated that I must do it. Whereas now I just see them as an option, right? Not an obligation. Yes, there's an interesting idea. Maybe I can do it. But does this fit my selection criteria? Like, does this have a fighting chance of working? Is this something that I can do on my own with a short time investment? Right? Is this something that I would enjoy doing? Right? Now, now sort of it's also becoming part of my selection criteria. And sort of things, uh, things like that. So, so yeah, I like the VC model, right? And by the way, this VC model is not unique to VCs, right? Like book publishers, movie studios, and Hollywood. Like this is very common. This actually is something that's been done for hundreds of years, like since the printing press and since there were investors, since the Renaissance and Europe, and probably even before. Sort of people have been taking a portfolio approach to to tame the uncertainty of sort of these speculative things, right? To, to make the unpredictable a bit more predictable. So it's not some fringe new idea that, that I came up with. It's just sort of, I think um, I'm trying to help others sort of realize that this is another approach to uh, entrepreneurship, if, if that's the right word. I sort of this is a bit more artisanal, maybe approach, right? not necessarily going for very speculative things, but just working for yourself, doing things that are more likely to work. And um, yes, we're trading of the upside usually, but um usually that's a <laughs> that's a good bargain anyway got it yeah you mentioned about twitter as being an idea generator mm -hmm. uh, and, and by the way you have a very successful course on twitter which is essentially just a pdf and a video and that has made you over two hundred thousand dollars in revenue just mm -hmm. by itself now that's crazy so uh, talk me about Twitter. Like, what is your approach to Twitter? You have over uh, 120,000 followers mm -hmm. uh, on that platform. And I believe that is the platform that is fueling the growth uh, mm -hmm. of your uh, mm -hmm. dashboard, of your portfolio of small bets. Mm -hmm. So how did you make that up? Did you have this following when you started out or did you build it from the ground up? No, no, I started from scratch. And even, even this, uh, I took an experimental approach, o almost unintentionally. By then, I wasn't thinking as rigorously as I am now. But uh, sort of when I remember the first day, like, the, the, you know, I left my job on a Friday. The next Monday, I was sitting here at the same desk and I was thinking, OK, uh, what can I do? What should I do? <laughs> and I, I immediately had another sort of small crisis of anxiety because I realized that I had absolutely no reputation in the outside world. Like I had some reputation in the couple of companies I had worked for before, but it was confined to those sort of couple of places, right? And the outside world was completely unknown. And this sort of worried me because I was imagining working on something, launching it into the void, nothing happens. And then what, right? So uh, I set out to try to, that's how I was thinking, to try to build a name for myself, right? A little bit. I wasn't trying to become famous or whatever, but just to try, um, you know, go out there, help people with what I had, right? And try to sort of build some reputation online. It wasn't, I wasn't intentionally directing Twitter, even though I had a bit of an inclination because until then I had never posted anything, never on social media. I had no social media experience, no, never had a Facebook account, never posted anything on Twitter. I had like, I used Twitter as a consumer, uh, but that was it. Uh, but I liked Twitter as a consumer already. That was something that I was already using as a consumer. Nevertheless, um, uh, I didn't start with Twitter. I mostly started blogging and going to other forums, lots of Reddit. Right? I was basically going to subreddits pretty much every day, things that I knew something about. And I was just helping people, answering questions like those who want to stalk me <laughs> can go find my profile on multiple forums, Reddit and the hackers, LinkedIn, Quora. Um, uh, Hacker News and Stack Overflow, like all these places for most of 2019, I was there refreshing the page every day, like looking for questions that I could answer, trying to help people. Slowly but surely, you know, some of the platforms were working better for me than others. Some, I was enjoying it more than others. You know, for example, uh, you know, Quora, for example, was working quite well, but still something, something in the platform that wasn't really gelling with me for some reason I can't explain. Uh, and again, sort of Twitter ended up the one that sort of uh, persevered, at least I managed to persevere and sort of that, that, that lasted because it was working well enough, sort of I was enjoying it, it became part of my 
my routine. Now I don't even think about Twitter. That's sort of part of my life. When I see something interesting or I'm talking sometimes with somebody like you and have a good conversation, like immediately afterwards, I might summarize something in that tweet. That's how Twitter has become, right? So uh, it happened organically as well. And even the growth there, like sort of the first year, it was quite slow. Right? I had a couple of thousand followers, then sort of the usual randomness laid in the world, right? Then sort of you... Sometimes you get um, uh, something that goes viral and you gain 10,000 followers, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, it's like that. But yes, you realize I sort of, I, I would attribute Twitter as being uh, significantly important to getting two things, right? Uh, attention and credibility to my uh, services and products that I was offering, right? That especially for the information products, the educational products that I made, you know, even if I could have done them before I had a Twitter audience, I almost certainly wouldn't have sold any because I would have been lacking those two things, right? So I, I'm not implying that Twitter is a requirement for everyone, even creators. I know many creators, many uh, entrepreneurs, whatever, who build successful businesses and found ways to get credibility and attention to other means, search engine optimization, paid ads, just personal connections, using other platforms like YouTube or Amazon or whatever. Like there's so many different ways. But this is the one that worked for me. And again, sort of, it's another example of sort of a random thing that I stumbled into. I tried many different things. Many of them I'm not doing anymore. And this one is the one that sort of I'm still, um, I'm still doing. That's super cool. So uh, on Twitter as well, I believe you took the same strategy of uh, initially mm -hmm. uh, when you were starting from scratch, you were going around and helping other people adding to conversations. Was yeah. that your yeah, strategy? I think I think this is the best strategy to go. Like, this is to take the attitude of like if you want to build an audience, if you want to, or even if you don't think of audience, like if you want to improve your reputation, just go help people. Like the, what's fascinating about the internet is there's probably a billion people right now, like on the internet, looking for something, trying to get a question answered. Like there's so many places where people already hang around. Like um, again, like all these forums, like where people are there. Like now, it's tens of thousands of people refreshing the page, looking for something interesting to read, or they're posting questions and waiting for an answer to come. It's a huge opportunity to go there, you know, find your niches, right? The things, the places, the things that, the topics that are related to you that you might be able to help with and just start helping. And I think, again, so the practice of helping, you start getting better at how to articulate your thoughts, how to help people, because even, even if you can help, it doesn't mean you're, you can sort of uh, deliver the, the, the information or the knowledge or whatever. So there's some skill involved that gets better with practice. And uh, I think the, the uh, final result of helping people is building a name for yourself, right? And then if there's a place where people can follow you or sign up for something, that's how you start building an audience, right? Ultimately, that's, that's what it is. Like with people, you help them uh, and they sign up to, you know, be inspired or learn more from you, right? I mean, people follow you for usually for selfish reasons in the beginning because they see something interesting and they say, I might learn something from this person, right? Or I might, I might get inspired about something. Or this person was so transparent about this that he or she might be more transparent in the future. And I'm curious and I want to see behind the scenes. That's how they, they you know, people think and how I think as well when I follow someone. That's sort of it's usually uh, somewhat selfish reasons, right? So yeah, totally get it. And uh, that, that's a different take from what uh, Twitter influencers <laughs> these days do. They're just uh, posting weekly threads every week, bang, bang, bang. And yeah. uh, then they gain followers and they think that this is the only approach to gaining followers. But I see that you are someone who is not doing, not taking that approach, posting threads every week, but yeah. you're still establishing that credibility, still growing the business, still doing very well on Twitter as well. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I, I, so I want to mention something about this because it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't disagree that that's a, a great strategy, right? Sort of becoming, I mean, there's a type of Twitter account that I like to call, you become like a Wikipedia uh, poster, right? Where you're just sharing things, you know, summarizing things from other people or sharing lessons from other people. And, you know, they're, they can be useful accounts. Right? So I probably follow a few like those as well. And they do gain a lot of followers probably faster than I ever did. The problem is that you never get to know these people. Right? The relationship building, that rarely happens. Because for people to get to know you right, personally, right, you need to 
uh, talk about yourself, right? Share about what you're doing, how you're thinking. Uh, answer people's questions, right? When they ask you something, tell me more about this. How did you do this and that? Right? You, you need to be there. You need to you need to be social, right? Sort of. And um, uh, I, I think you you gain a different type of follower, right? I mean, if you're if you're it's like it's like following CNN or a news or an organization, right? Yes, you might get some interesting information, but it's not a person that you got to know a little bit, right? Whereas I think if you're sharing parts of your life, right, transparency behind the scenes, how you're thinking, uh, yes, the growth rates might be smaller, but I think you build something uh, of a different kind, right, than, yeah, uh, than that. Exactly. I agree. So when you're taking this approach of just posting out information, summarizing information, that's a great approach. Uh, but then people are following you for the information and not yeah. for the person that you really are. Uh, but if you show your personality out there, then you're actually connecting with people. And this is the kind of following you need if you want to do well in business, because people want to buy from people they actually know, yeah. not from just Absolutely. media houses pushing yeah, out no, stuff, no, right? Great, great, great quote. Yeah, sort of you get a huge advantage that right, if people already know you, right? Sort of it's a, it's a very powerful thing. Exactly. And uh, the one interesting thing that I saw on your Twitter bio, uh, and I want to make sure that I ask this on the podcast, you say that I, I am bad for the economy. It's just a one-liner on your Twitter bio that says I'm bad for the economy. Why are you bad for the economy? So it started as an insider joke. There was a period, and it still happens, where uh, many people were telling me almost on, I would say, probably every week, I was getting a DM or a tweet from somebody telling me, I quit my high-paying job to work less and enjoy life more. And I, I joked once, sort of, I'm becoming bad for the economy, like bad for the GDP, because people are making less money and enjoying, enjoying life. And it started like that, sort of as an sort of insider joke within my Twitter community. But, but more recently, I've been actually taking it a bit more seriously because I started to realize that, you know, many things that are good for us as individuals are sometimes not good for the economy, right? Or, and vice versa, things that are good for the economy are not necessarily good for us and take overworking. That if I were to work 18 hours a day, I would probably be improving the GDP of the world, of my country and everywhere. Uh, but is that good for me or my family? Probably not, right? So uh, there's, again, maybe this is a, I don't know if this is just mostly Western culture or general modern world uh, sort of attitude that we almost have an obligation to be good for the economy, like good for the collective wealth of the world. But I think going back to sort of what we were discussing before, what's more important is our own individual, you know, our own, our family, whatever uh, prospects. And those are not always in line with the collective wealth, right? Sort of, you know, I would probably have been contributing to economy better, making a big impact on the world if I stayed working at Amazon and doing my job, sort of I had bigger platforms, more leverage, right? sort of working at a big trillion dollar company. But it was wearing me out, right? I was spending a uh, little time with my kids. I was leaving the house before they wake up, arriving home late where they're about to go to sleep. On the weekends, I'm almost stressed out because there's so much work to do and so on and so forth. Like, uh, what's the point, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I was making great money, right? Sort of, sort of the, it was being compensated well. I can't really complain there. Uh, so uh, that was good, but it was sort of, eating out of my life. So um, again, I invite people to sometimes to consider that what we get uh, sort of fed by the environment that we live in, right? that we sort of have some obligation to fulfill our potential or to make a big impact or not necessarily because those are bad things. They're not, right? I mean, uh, but we can find satisfaction in much smaller things and what's probably more important for our well-being and us of our families to find the right balance uh, uh you know to 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 live a life that matches our preferences right something that again is really uh really discussed when talking about lifestyle strategies exactly and connecting to that my next question is that people often assume that if you want to be successful then you have to take on more. You have to take on more stress. You have to take on more work. If you want to get more money, if you want to get more wealth, if you want to be able to do more things, you have to do more work. That's mm -hmm. a very direct correlation that people see there. Uh, but I see that 
in your case, that's not the case. You're not doing a lot of work. You're just doing minimal amount of work, but you're still building wealth, still living a healthy lifestyle. So mm-hmm. how do people do this? That they get, they chase success, but in the pursuit of success, they're not accumulating stress. They're living a healthy life still and a healthy family life still. So I, I think the mistake most people do is that they sort of assume that uh, more is better, right? And uh, that, of course, you know, if you're in a situation where you're facing extreme hardship, right? You're, you're, you have no wealth, right? You have debt and whatever. It's probably a good idea to work hard, you know, suffer some stress to get out of that situation, right? And be... Uh, in a better position, more uh, resilient and gain some peace of mind and whatever. So, you know, that's that's great. The problem is that once they get out of there, right, and then things start to work out, uh, it's sort of they, usually many people never really consider whether they should draw the line somewhere, right? And sort of, I think the modern world gives us the option to sometimes work as much as we can. There's lots of opportunity. And I, I you know, I sympathize because I felt I faced the struggle myself. It's very hard to leave money on the table, knowing that you could be working more or there's some opportunity there that's going to be paying you more and you choose to not take it. It's just there's something strange that sort of it feels like every cell in your body wants you to do it. You have to uh, consciously re- you know, reflect and reject it. Right? But I think this is a very useful exercise right? because as I was explaining before, uh, like uh, I, I, I think so. This, this has been helpful for me. Like if, asking myself, like, what's the point? Like, what's the point of earning another, getting another ten percent increase? Uh, is it going to materially improve my life? Of oh, everyone wants more money, but at what cost does it come? And uh, I think once we start looking at um, measuring our lives based on the quality of our lifestyle this becomes an easier decision. It's, it's still not easy, right? but it becomes an easier way at least to reason about it. Right? Because, you know, I'm making much less money right now, significantly less, like less than half the amount that I was doing when I was three years ago working at Amazon. And nevertheless, I wouldn't even consider trading back right, my life with them. Like I would consider my lifestyle to be 100 times better or like even though so I'm making much less and not because I don't like the money like I would like to make more as well but sort of again everything tested with uh, at what cost does it come with and um, sort of uh, you know to be successful you need to be stressed out so it's become part of my selection criteria as well as I was discussing before like I, I was I joked recently on Twitter with somebody like um, uh, I, I basically somebody was asking me the same question and I said I intentionally avoid the difficult things like the stressful things because I can afford to of course right? because like as I mentioned before if if things were different maybe beggars can't be choosers sometimes you have to take these slightly more stressful things but I think once you do start to get the option to uh, leave things on the table. Uh, you know, you should consider them as an option. And many people will probably feel like they're not yet, they don't yet have the luxury to be uh, picky. But that's what I push back. Right? I think many people think they don't yet have, but usually they do. Right? It's like what's keeping them trapped is some big aspirational goal or some idea that they want to materialize right? or, you know, they're living way beyond their means or something like that. And it does require some effort right, to, to, again, curb your ambitions, right, and uh, sort of uh, the examine your life, reset some things, and then you start seeing, again, like seeing things differently. And you start seeing much many more options, right, uh, uh, to, again, say no to things without necessarily feeling guilty or losing sleep at night. Exactly. So to, uh, to summarize this answer a little bit, so basically you said that firstly, you have to do that work and take on that kind of work to get you to a stage from where you have the ability to choose, you have the leverage to choose, because if you don't have a backup or you don't have a cushion, then you can't really make those choices. But once you build that choice, build that cushion for yourself, mm-hmm. then you start making choices that what is it that is really increasing the quality of my life? not essentially making me more money, but increasing the quality of my life. What is giving me less stress? What is giving me more time with my family? You optimize for those things then. And from there on, that is how you build a high quality, successful life. It's not about optimizing about money all the way through till your 40s and 50s. It's just about getting to that cushion. And from there on, 
pushing back and leaving money on the table and optimizing for quality of life more than money, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think sort of what what uh, what is sometimes hard for people, and I remember this was hard for me, is like, what is that cushion, right? Because uh, how much buffer do you need? Like, is it is it about having six months of expenses saved? Is it about having a million dollars in your retirement account? Is it like you have to have your house fully paid off? There's lots of questions that they're hard to answer. And I think the way, what, what helped me uh, draw the line about what is enough is visualizing concretely the negative things that could happen to me. Like, what if there would be an economic collapse? What if I get demotivated for, from working for myself? You know, some even more catastrophic things. Like, what if I get injured and I can't work anymore and I have my two young kids and so I'm the sole breadwinner right now? What would, ha- what would happen in that case? What if I were to die? It's not a pleasant thing to think about, but sort of when you have a family, for example, you have to think about these things. And what, when you start thinking about these concrete events, then I think it becomes a matter of preparing for those things. And sometimes you realize that you actually don't need that much to cover those things as reasonably as possible. You know, you can buy insurance, you can have some emergency fund saved to allow you to maybe find another job or whatever. You can, uh, sometimes it uh, helps you realize that maybe you need to build some skill or whatever right, to have some backup. Sometimes that's the backup, right? Just having this skill to be able to go back in the marketplace and, you know, trade time for money, right? And sort of make, make, make ends meet that way. And I think uh, sort of this sort of negative visualization, right? Sort of preparing for things concretely is helpful because it uh, adds this is the problem of uh, sort of saving for savings sake, right? Or building optionality for optionality's sake. Right, it helps you understand I have enough and then I can just enjoy my life in the present rather than keep deferring, keep building options for the future, a future that maybe might never come or, you know, or sort of, <laughs> uh, you, this, this is a problem. Like people who just hoard money forever, sort of, they're almost always sort of stressed out because everything that they're spending in the present, they almost feel like morally, uh, you know, confused because they're not just spending something today, but they're also missing out on the future potential earnings from the thing that they spent forever. Like it's, it's, but what's the point? Like you don't want to bring all those options to the symmetry with you. <laughs> you don't want to use them. And uh, I think it's important when you think about the life, st- life strategy to know how you're going to use them and just deferring them for the future. I'm going to use them someday later. It's, I think it's not a great way to, it's a great strategy at least. Right. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the way you put it. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with, especially ambitious people who are in the workforce and who are thinking about how to build a cushion for themselves so that they can from there on go on their own. So thanks for sharing that one. All right. So my next question is that you recently tweeted uh, that your work allows you to uh, go on a six-month uh, holiday this year, right? Mm-hmm. So how is how is that possible? One, and <laughs> yeah. two... How, how can others try to replicate it someday? Have a yeah. six-month holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, two things, right? And uh, so one one of them is um, related to what I mentioned before. It's my selection criteria. I try to avoid doing things that get me into long-term uh, obligations with my time, right? That I have to be somewhere. So I like that flexibility. And again, so I feel like I have the... Uh, luxury of being selective right now and try to avoid things that would require me to commit a lot of time or a lot of time in one place. Uh, the other part is that, um, again, it's just uh, fe- feeling that I can leave money on the table. I know that I could work harder. Like, I was a bit lucky this year. And this is, how, this is sort of a little bit um, how I think about it generally. Right? Sort of since I left my job, my income has been very variable, right? And this in the beginning was very stressful, I'll admit. So I sort of, I had been living a life for like 15, 16 years where I got a very predictable paycheck at the end of the month, rounded to the neck, to the precise two decimal points. And suddenly I was working for myself where one me, one month I was making nothing, another month I was making $20,000, the next month I was making negative something, next month I was making a lot, lots of ups and downs. and. In the beginning, it was stressful until something happened. Again, automatically, I don't even know what happened, where I turned 180 degrees on this. I actually started to see it almost beneficial 
the ups and downs. Like the down, the downs were almost automatically activating a part of my brain that was dormant to make me more creative, more productive, a beneficial stressor, like something that was really helping me. It's very hard to explain why, but I could feel it. Right? I could feel me being more creative with my products, thinking of new ideas, uh, things that I've been procrastinating forever. Suddenly they formalize better in my head when I'm in those dips. And in the contest, when things are up, I became uh, more comfortable to just ride the momentum, ride the wave, and not worry about uh, needing to work more. I, I, to be completely honest, I feel almost incapable of being productive when things are going well. So why fight it? Like, why, why not instead uh, take time off, spend time with my family, do the things that I want to take up hobbies? You know, I picked up woodworking last year when I was riding one of these highs, right? Sort of, and uh, sort of discovered something that I really enjoy doing and still doing right now. So uh, the beginning of this year was great for me financially. I sort of made, uh, I think I exceeded 250K or roughly this first, uh, you know, not even five months already. To me, it feels, you know, I don't need any anymore this year. Whatever is going to come this year, it's a bonus, right? Um, and I'm going to take it easy, intentionally. Uh, there, there's, you know, to be completely honest, it's not a, a complete vacation where I turn off my phone and disconnect from my internet. There's still the kind of work that I do. There's still probably a few, maybe 30 minutes of the day of, you know, some customer support questions, whatever there's some background of that. But... I, unlikely I'm going to be building new products, new uh, new big things. I'm just going to carry on what I'm doing and take it as easy as possible, do the minimum necessary. What I expect will happen probably at some point towards the end of the year, my income was going to start to decrease, right? Where it's going to become uh, a beneficial stressor again. And then I will start to be automatically motivated to look at new things, think about new things. Probably I'll be in the right place uh, to come up with something, new ideas, whatever. Of course, I always have this small cushion that I've prepared for that. So it's not like I'm risking anything. Like if I get a, a month where I'm at zero, it's going to, I end up homeless or whatever, right? Sort of, uh, I've, I've prepared for, um, for, for, for the worst case scenarios, right? But, uh, this is what is allowing me to take it again. Like it's the mental exercise of not feeling guilty that I could work more and earn more and just leaving money on the table, like intentionally and feeling okay with it. I absolutely love this mindset. And this is so in contrast with almost all the founders that I've interviewed uh, previously on the podcast, except one, which is Jordan Connor. He, he has a Oh yeah, I was just, that, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. I was just talking with him yesterday, actually, incidentally. <laughs> Yeah, great. So he also has a similar mindset that, okay, yeah. I've built something that's making me money on a recurring basis, month on month, and I'm I'm comfortable. So he's also he also built a bridge uh, outside mm -hmm. his house. Yes, yes, and I you, see. You're, <laughs> yeah, and, and you're also someone who are, uh, you're making uh, wooden, uh, what do you call them? The cutting boards yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, cutting boards. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And, you, and, you, and you're selling those too. So those are also a part of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. So absolutely great. And another thing that you mentioned that it it was really hard for you, uh, you know, migrating from getting a monthly salary uh, to the variability of uh, your own business, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I would like to quote uh, this very interesting line, which says that the most dangerous drug in the world yeah. uh, is a monthly is a monthly salary, right? So you were probably just facing the repercussions of getting rid of that drug, okay, okay. Uh, and that's. And yeah. I, I would, I would, uh, I would add to that quote, which I completely agree with, is that I think the variability, uh, dealing with the uncertainty of variable income and the variability of business itself, feels almost like a muscle, right? That I think when you're not using it, when when you're not making decisions under uncertainty, and you're not fending yourself, fending for yourself under these uncertain conditions, this this muscle seems to atrophy away, like it's like a muscle that we don't use, and um, sort of. And again, this I admit, like this is very hard to explain. Sort of, it's just something that I feel. I feel better uh, with me knowing that I don't know what I'm going to be doing six months from now, but I feel okay with it. I'm very confident that I'm going to be able to figure something out. I sort of have ideas, promote things, right? Figure things that would work for me without necessarily knowing what they will be. And this was completely bizarre to me until three years ago. That's right, where I needed to know what was in line. I didn't know the predictable part in front of me. Otherwise, it would just stress me out. Whereas now, 
I just feel much, much better. And I think this is just something that you just need to, the way you build this muscle is just try to start taking some risks, right? This, by the way, with risks, not necessarily risking consequential things, just make some, uh, make some uns- things that are subject to uncertainty, right? Launch a product, right? Write a book, uh, write a blog post, right? Post a tweet, right? These are things that you never know whether somebody's going to read them or buy them or see them or whatever, but you start to exercise your risk-taking muscle and over time, I think it's just to start to become better. There seems to be something in our subconscious, right? That again, in the modern world, we tend to undervalue for some reason. In the modern world, we try to value, we give glorify the conscious part of our brain, the analytical one, the one that thinks in numbers and spreadsheets and logic and pros and cons and whatever. But there's something more primitive that I think is still very smart, very powerful, that in the modern world, we almost see it like a vestigial organ, like the appendix that we could now almost like <laughs> remove and we still live happily. But I think when it comes to dealing with uncertainty, seeing hidden risks and uh, dealing with sort of the unpredictable and things like that, this is probably the smarter calculator in our brain. This is the one that probably knows better how to assess. We had to call it our gut feel, right? Our sort of, sort of the thing that we can't really explain, we can't really articulate it. And, you know, I, like when I used to work at Amazon, uh, if I were making a decision and I would claim that I made it based on gut feel, probably I would have been laughed out of the room. Like probably nobody makes decisions that way in a, at a regular place. You need to present data, uh, make surveys, right? present information, weigh the pros and cons. But when you're working for yourself, you can base things on gut feel and your gut feel gets better as you... Uh, live your life, live uncertainty, right? deal with the unpredictable. And uh, it's a very powerful part of our brain that I think we should try to activate <laughs> even more and listen to. Like, because it speaks to us in weird ways. Like, it speaks to us with uh, inspiration, with lack of motivation, with procrastination, right? with energy, all these sort of positive and negative signals. Uh, anxiety, it's another thing that comes from the subconscious, like anxiety, we in the modern world we try to suppress it sometimes, but I think it's usually helpful. That it helped me a lot when I got a small crisis of anxiety. Instead of sort of trying to hide it under the rug, I listened to it while I'm feeling anxious, and I realized that I had some gaps, so I was underestimating some risk, right? And I needed to change my strategy, right? And I think it helped me open my eyes to see things differently. I agree, and that's such an important muscle to build, and the way to. Uh, go about building that is by taking small bets exactly. uh, in your yeah. terms, right? Yeah. Just take small risks and see where it goes and build that muscle. All right. My next question is around your online courses. So mm-hmm. you have now built a couple of very successful courses. You already had the Twitter course doing well, and now you recently started the cohort based course mm-hmm. around uh, building a portfolio of small bets. Mm-hmm. So what what's your mindset while creating these courses? Uh, how do you ensure that these courses are valuable and actionable to help the learners implement those learnings in their own lives? So uh, this is not necessarily the only strategy to take, but the way I've taken it, and again, I sort of stumbled on this approach, is that I never started any of these things with the, uh, you know, with the idea of creating a course. You know, I, I, when, I was, when I started tweeting, I was mostly talking about programming topics. You know, I was a programmer. I was building my first project was a software as a service business. And I was doing lots of coding. I was sharing what I knew. Again, mostly as a, as a reputation building exercise. I was just trying to help people, ask, answer questions, posting my thoughts, summarizing information, and so on and so forth. And um, uh, what I noticed was that eventually, over time, people were interested to know more about certain topics from me, right? And I was pretty much waking up almost every day, like two questions in DMs or under my tweets. What do you think about this? What if I'm doing this? Is this writing? So and so forth. And I was still trying to answer everyone for free as much as I can. But then I started to realize there was a limit to how much I can answer in a tweet message or in a DM or whatever. I had more to say. Right. And that's where my first information product came from. Right? It was a technical programming book called The Good Parts of AWS, where I tried to do a brain dump of everything I knew about how to use a particular technology or a group of technologies. And I offered it pretty much to the same people who were asking me questions about these topics. Right? So again, it wasn't, I was completely ignorant in sort of this field. I had no idea what this was going to sell 
or how much it was going to sell, but you know, it worked. So I sort of that first thing made over six figures. Uh, and very quickly, I sort of, there were some sales, which was super, super motivating. That opened my eyes to, first of all, I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed promoting it. I sort of, it, it introduced me to the creator economy, if, if you will. Right? So that was the first thing. And originally, I was planning to do more like it. I was planning to do a sequel and probably even multiple sequels because I saw more opportunity. Um, but then sort of a funny thing happens, right, when I was sharing some of the performance of this book uh, on, on the internet, on Twitter and other places. People were curious again, like, how did I manage to sell, you know, 5,000 copies or 6,000 copies of this book, uh, you know, were from scratch, essentially, right? And I was telling people, I was building an audience, I was doing all these things, and here's how I did it. And pretty much the same thing happened, right? Over time, I realized uh, I was getting lots of questions from people telling me, I'm an introvert. I'm not, I don't know anything about marketing. How can I build my own audience? How can I build my own following? What did you do? What did you not do? What mistakes? I was helping people as much as I could. could. And again, I realized I could probably talk about this for an hour instead of just writing uh, sort of small tweets. And that's how the second uh, info product happened. And this was... You mentioned that like, this was sort of extremely successful. Again, it still puzzles me uh, how it is it's approaching $300,000 right now. I think it's around 285K about two years later. I'm still surprised how it's still making sales, even though I'm barely promoting it. Like it's still making three or $4,000 a month in sales, pretty much word of mouth, I think. Again, very, very surprising, just the randomness of everything. Um, and more or less, even the cohort course that I started recently. This is something that I've been talking about these ideas, small bets, portfolios, for a long time now. Right? Since I think my first tweet introducing this, I, uh, summarizing these ideas, it was from, I think, March of 2020, right? So at least two years ago. And again, I had been wanting to find a way to talk about more because I had lots of things in my head and was trying to help people over time. And I only stumbled in the cohort course idea very, very recently, like last November. Until recently, I thought I disliked cohort courses, to be completely honest, because I, I always consider myself a self-directed learner. I tend to learn more from books. I don't like structure in general, pretty much everywhere throughout my life, especially when learning. So I thought I don't like cohort courses as a student and even as a host. Until again, by accident, almost I joined one <laughs> and I love the experience. I love the community. And suddenly, again, light bulb moment, I thought, wait, this is probably the best structure for me to share these ideas because there was lots of content here. Right? It was probably would have been a too big bet for a book that right? I would have had to write a 500-page book or for a self-directed course like my Twitter course. It was probably would have been like 10 hours of content, like lots of stuff. But a cohort course feels like conversations, feels natural. It doesn't feel like 10 hours worth of thing. The structure became an important part. And that's, again, another thing that happened almost by accident was the community, which initially I set up a Discord server just to share the recording links and maybe some, uh, you know, some, some, some notes from the, from the sessions. And a community sort of formed on its own there. Like people were sharing ideas, asking for feedback. And nowadays, sort of, again, a strange development, again, showing the randomness of things. The community almost became the most valuable part of this product. Like, uh, people are signing up for the community and treating the course as a bonus rather than the other way around, like, which is, again, very, very fascinating uh, sort of turn of events in just six months. Like, this was some, something still very, very new. And, uh, you know, again, this is very interesting. This still keeps surprising me how much randomness uh, affects what we want to do. We tend to believe that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that sometimes we're, we did things intentionally, right? But usually it's just we bump into random things and just choose what works again and abandon what doesn't. And in hindsight, it looks intelligent design, <laughs> but in reality, it's just... Uh, bumping into things and just making choices. Got it. So sh shifting tracks a little bit, mm -hmm. you bought a big piece of land in the, in the middle mm -hmm. of wilderness, in the middle of a forest or some, some place like that. So uh, why did you do that, number one? And what's your plan uh, to use that land for? So um, this, is a, this is a purely, uh, I would call it a project that falls like in the bucket of like hobbies or something that I'm doing just for its own sake. Like, there's no financial 
benefit in fact is costing a lot more than just buying a finished house that was lots of risks and expenses and whatever but to be uh, to tie it to what we've described this is giving me a bit, giving my surplus income a bit of a, a bit of meaning right sort of i again sort of buy i'm grateful right sort of i was making surplus income uh, so i was i had that cushion uh, i was making more than i was spending um, I, I'm not the kind of real spender to just go spend on, you know, silly things. And sort of this project is helping me, you know, okay, I made $10,000 extra this month, uh, more than I spent. I don't need to save more. Uh, this is helping me spend them into something useful, right? I mean, it's a project that we're enjoying as a family, right? Sort of even the challenges, right? So even my kids are sort of involved. We go there often. And even though things are running slowly, right? Just we're still you know, just dealing with lots of permits and other bureaucracy, as you can imagine. So, but it's part of, it's a, it's a game essentially. And this is sort of helping me, uh, again, sort of make, uh, at least the surplus income be a bit more meaningful. And it's not adding stress to my life. It's not something that I need to finish by some time. Uh, or if uh, at some point, maybe things, financially change and I need to pause the project, I can pause it any time. Right? So it's not there's no loans, nothing on it, right? there's no obligations. So it's just all upside, no downside, right? And it's sort of uh, it's there's still some asset in it. Right? So again, if I wanted to sell it, I could also sell it as well. So it's not but that's how I'm seating it. Right? So so it's it's a project. And I think it's good it's good to find something like this. Right? Again, like I dislike saving for saving's sake. I think that's a very unnatural thing to do. And it's like, it feels purposeless. We're not wired, I think, to, to, to save that way. We don't, we start getting confused. We start becoming hoarders of money. This just helps me just deploy it somewhere, essentially, right? At least after I have my cushions satisfied, right? Just have something else to, to spend it on. <laughs> yeah, I totally love that. And a lot of people just keep saving their entire life to only uh, realize yeah. at the end of their life that they didn't really enjoy that wealth, right? Yeah. So that's a great approach. Also, you briefly just mentioned your kids. So I would like mm -hmm. to learn about your parenting philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you how do you try to raise your kids? What are you trying to what values are you trying to imbibe in them deliberately? Yeah, interesting question. You know, to be completely honest, I'm still figuring figuring it out. My kids are still seven and five, so still youngish. So I probably I'll have a better answer after they're maybe twenty or something like that. Um, I'm uh, in general, right? Uh, I'm trying to uh, not uh, sort of constrain them into anything, right? or make them believe that they need to take some part, or there, uh, you know, there's some things that they must absolutely do because I disliked that um, sort of thing when I was growing up, and sort of I I, I like the uh, liberty, right, of knowing that uh, I'm not obligated, right, to pursue uh anything right, that that society or the environment wants to pursue of course i'm not saying like uh, i want i would want them eventually like, to see that there are some things that it's good to it's good to uh have a great fallback that like, it's good to have maybe build a skill or you know get certain level of education so that you can always fall back to something right that's i think a very very important thing to have right so sort of i'm not saying like they should you know, ignore education completely or not learn anything and just go do whatever they want. I think it's still good to to have those fallbacks, at least, you know, predictable fallbacks, uh, because those things give you more um, flexibility, right? more safe optionality, right? to keep, uh, you know, taking your life, whatever you want. But yeah, sort of, um, I think my, my honest answer is that I'm just playing it by ear and... Um, uh, sort of learning as it goes. I don't, you know, people people tend to say parenting is hard. You know, it obviously has some challenges right, because you uh, want the best for your kids and there's lots of decisions. But you know, personally, I don't think it's as as hard as people want it. Uh, you know, claim it to be. Uh, uh, you know, as long as you know there are, there are no health issues and things like that, which that can obviously be very very hard. But in general. Um, it's 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 quite fun, I think, actually, and I think the constraints that uh, parent, you know, having kids bring, I think, as well, sort of make life more interesting. I, again, I have much less time now than I had seven years ago before I had kids, but I wouldn't trade my life with that one. I think my life now is way way better with kids in it 
than um, than it was before. So <laughs> again, like more more flexibility or more time is not necessarily better. Right? It's sort of uh, life. I think is mm-hmm. much is better with variety, with some constraints, uh, and yeah. with 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 uh, with some challenges as well. <laughs> Absolutely, and kids are, kids are an absolute blessing from God, right? Absolutely. So, uh, c- c- going on to my uh, last uh, question for the day, uh, this is that: uh, What is something that you feel that people often get terribly wrong about their lives? Um, I think it's not discovering their own two preferences, right, and sort of living a life based on the preferences of other people or of the culture in general right, or, or of their peers right and this is again this is easier said than done and i think this is something that you can just snap your fingers and say i'm going to learn my preferences and preferences change as well so it's sort of a, a dynamic but uh it's this discipline of uh feeling okay right uh, not doing or not liking the things that other people like or not pursuing the past that other people pursue and um it's um it's sort of uh, it, it's fascinating to me how, uh, uh, because again, I understand it's not easy, but I, it's fascinating to me how hard people seem to find it, uh, like to even consider that they could be, they could have different preferences. Right? So um, I don't really have good advice of how to snap out of it, but I think at least being cognizant of uh, of the challenge, right? Of how I think how big of an advantage you get in your life if you know somewhat reliably what your two preferences are and you chase those instead of sort of being pulled into the preferences of others or or of other people who want to sell you something or you know or of other of of sort of culture in general right, that pulls you in many different directions because i think again sort of the what was eye opening to me when i was sort of working at amazon and uh sort of going the traditional career path is that you you hear many people saying you know my goal is to become a vp or by the, before i'm 40 or become a ceo of a medium-sized company before i'm 35 and then sometimes they do realize those dreams they do become that and then then what right so then they realize that you know their life is not particularly better or Sometimes it's even worse right? because they get more responsibility, less time, and sort of it eroded into some part, some important part of their life. So it's sort of I'm very cautious right, with myself to not uh, fall into these traps because sometimes there are traps right, and they're easy to fall into, like between being sort of fooled into uh, something, right? Believing something that doesn't really um, sort of fit or match my real uh, preferences. Yeah, and that, that's a great answer, and that's so true that uh, most of us are living lives uh, driven by other people's choices and not our very own. And that is because of peer pressure, that is because of your surroundings, that is because of your environment, physical environment. And it is, like you said, very difficult to detach from all of those things and have independent thought, right? Yeah. So, but being cognizant of this fact that you're being influenced by all these factors will mm-hmm. help you in doing this, right? Yeah. All right. So coming on to the last section of this podcast episode, that is, that is the rapid fire section. Let's uh, go. <laughs> and uh, so let's go. I have five quick questions and you have mm-hmm. to pick one of the two choices. All mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. First one, variables or absolutes? Variables. <laughs> All right. VC money or bootstrap? Bootstrap. All right. Marketing or product? Marketing. Okay. Recorded courses or cohort-based courses? Mm, cohort. Okay. I, I like how you made the switch. Mm. <laughs> All right. Last one. Books or podcasts? I would say it's tough, but I would say books. But it's on the line. <laughs> books. Got it. Uh, what, what are your favorite books? Quickly. Want to do uh, everything by Nassim Taleb, Anti Fragile Food mm-hmm. by Random Ness, Skin in the Game, uh, Black Swan, um, others. Should I mention others? Um, I like I like a book. Sure. Uh, I like another one, uh, not very well known, by Alfie Cohn. It's called Punished by the Words. It talks about motivation and the uh, the insidiousness of 
extrinsic motivators, right? So, so these forcing functions, uh, um, sort of forcing ourselves or others to do certain things, right? With the expectation of motivating others or ourselves. But oftentimes the most powerful type of motivation tends to come intrinsically and it's super, super powerful. Interesting. So with that, we yeah. come to the end of this episode. Uh, and I loved how you shared extensive insights into all the work that you're doing, how you built a portfolio of small bets, uh, which is small only in terms of the bets, not in terms of earnings, right? So, and that is an approach that more people can take. I will also uh, make sure to put the link to your courses, your Twitter course, and also your cohort based courses. I believe the registrations for that are also going to open soon, right? Yep, yep, yep. They, they are, yes. They already are? They are, they are already open, yes. I'm sort of, uh, I'm enrolling people every month, right? So like now they can sign up to op to enroll in the, at the end of the, the month. And they will be sort of openings periodically. Yeah. Got it, got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so now, uh, why don't you just uh, direct people to uh, where, wherever they can connect with you or follow your journey? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the best place is Twitter at Divasallo, D-V-A-S-S-A-L-L-O. I'm there, sort of um, very active. Uh, feel free to ping me, DM me, comment under my tweets. Uh, I tend to try to reply to everything, uh, to everything that has a question mark <laughs> as much as I can. Uh, great. I'll make sure to put the links uh, to everything that you just mentioned in the show notes below so that everyone can reach there easily. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Daniel. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prashant. It was really fun. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.